You know, there's a temptation. There's lots of temptations. But there is a temptation for we Christians to try to take God's Word, try to handle the Bible as if it was God's great encyclopedia for humanity. Have you ever been tempted to do that? I've seen it done over and over again, some kind of best-selling topical index, you know, with tabs on every pages, uh, listing all the human problems and providing neat and easily applied divine solutions. Oh, i got a problem with that. There it is right there. Oh, there's God. There's the answer. That's awesome. Okay. Maybe you've noticed, like I have, that when you go to Scripture looking for specific issues, you might not exactly find those specific issues explicitly referenced between Genesis and Revelation. Uh, for example, midlife crisis. <laughs> it's not in there. Maybe that was Samson's problem. Uh, no, nah, probably not. Um, teenagers, unheard of, <laughs> right? Um, being one and parenting one, it's not in there. Um, social media, a global pandemic, and, and, and many, many more. And some Christians get really frustrated and they even get discouraged with that reality because that's the reality. And so they default to other solutions, to other answers. And there are so many other voices out there that you can go listen to, and they love to have you listen to them. Um, Some Christians choose to use the Bible's help only when it does speak clearly and specifically to the issue that's at hand. On the other hand, we do something else. And this is what our whole summer series is going to be about. On the other hand, we might fall into this other subtle error. Because we believe, we absolutely believe, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul clearly states that all Scripture, how much is that? All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's God that's why we call it God's Word, from Genesis to Revelation. And it's profitable for teaching, for correction, for instruction, all that stuff. We, you believe that? Yeah, I believe that. I mean, that's why I'm here at Grace Chapel and not someplace else. We believe that so much that I've found that some Christians risk bending. They risk twisting, you know, helping Scripture along because it doesn't, in their mind, relate to today, to the 21st century in the issues we have before us. And so they do that so that it now says something about everything. Sometimes things that it really doesn't have anything to say on. We want it to, but it's just not specifically there. And both of these are common errors. It happens to all of us all the time. But what it points out is that you and I are missing something. We are missing the genius of what God's Word is all about, this Bible. The Bible is a narrative. It's this incredible story of divine revelation for humans who are desperately in need of saving. We're walking dead. 
We're born that way. We live that way until we're regenerated by God through the Holy Spirit. It's this incredible story, and it, and it, and it comes along with divine notes. <laughs> it's awesome. You, you don't need my notes. You need God's notes. And they, they encompass every human life. There's nobody in here who will not be affected by God's Word if you will read it. It's comprehensive in its scope, but it's not exhaustive in its content. We are not so naive, are we, to think that we can contain the entire wisdom of God in a single book. (laughs) We don't think that, do we? So even though the Bible might not directly address every experience you face in 2021, the Bible can interpret the most profound issues you will face in 2021, every last one of them. And here are four reasons why. The Bible presents us with a real world. Um, It's not a Marvel comic. It's not ancient mythology about gods and heroes. You can't read the Bible for very long before encountering the shocking honesty of the Bible. It's shockingly honest. It's like, who would ever put that in there? And why? Because that's real life. This is the way it really goes down. Living in this fallen world isn't minimized. It's never sugar-coated. Look at Romans 8, 20 and 23 with me just for a second. For the creation, that's everything that God created, was subjected to what? Futility. Well, thanks for coming out today. You can go home now. Yeah, it's futile. Not willingly, like we buck against this all the time. We're trying to create a utopia here on the planet, and it's going really well. That was tongue-in-cheek, if you don't know me, all right? But because of Him, that would be God who subjected it with a hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning This world is in pain, and it's letting us know. Groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but you, child of God, upon the profession of your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth, and not only creation, but we ourselves. And we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And we groan in, do you you groan? I know that's not a popular, you know, American Christian thing to say that Christians should be groaning. We're supposed to be happy. We're happy and joyful. And we are. But do you ever groan? Come on, be honest. This is church. We groan inwardly because we're waiting. This isn't it yet. Have we arrived yet? No. We eagerly await for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Oh, and as you get older, does that not become so true? Redeem me now, please. 
Yet some Christians are confused and discouraged with how their life goes. How did I get here? I don't like it. They're surprised by this ever-present plague of failure. You just need to go back to Genesis when God placed a curse on the planet and said, you know what, things are not going to come easy anymore. This is going to be the way it is. They're unprepared for whatever today might bring, completely unprepared. Why? Maybe it's because we don't understand the environment that the Bible describes so clearly in which we live, work, play, and worship. The Bible introduces us to a real planet. It's wicked. It's fallen. That's it. Number two, the Bible introduces us to real people. Um, The characters that we come across in Scripture are not a menagerie of human nobility. (laughs) By any stretch of the imagination, they are flawed. They are not cartoon characters who walk around with a smile on their face all the time and can fall off a cliff and live. You mean, I love that about cartoons. You mean they bounce and they, they get cut up and they just pick up their nose and put it back on. It's great. That's not the Bible. We discover a rich display of the full range of human emotions, all of them. And some of them are really ugly. Whenever you crack open your Bible, you are ushered into the hallways of human hearts. You're privileged. We are privileged to examine thoughts, inspect um, desires. Why is that happening? What's going on with that person? We're able to understand choices and their consequences. Whenever we read Scripture, we find ourselves exposed as we read about real people because we identify and we go, yeah, I get that. I get that. That's me. And we're confronted with the reality of what real people are like And there is no better method of self-understanding and self-exposure than the mirror of Scripture. James 1, 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and preserves, being no no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Thirdly, the Bible calls us to worship, to the worship of a real God. The God of Scripture is not some hero of mythology. This has been pretty popular, popularly taught. He's not the projection of our weak minds who we are desperately in need of something to hang on to. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of everything. He is the ruler of all that there is. 
He's the only being in the universe worthy of our worship. The revelation of God in Scripture is the only place where you and I will find real hope for absolutely every area of our life. He's the only one who is entirely above everything, everything that we face. He's beyond and above that. Ephesians 4, 6, one God and the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, and yet He is at the same time intimately familiar with all of it, everything that you're going through today. He gets it. Psalm 139.3, you search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. In Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest, this is Jesus Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, in every respect, has been tempted as we are. He's been there. Yet without sin. Then let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace before God, a throne we can approach because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for our sins once and for all, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you in need today? There's the solution in the Bible, pretty explicit. So we run to Him, don't we? Why is the church in America experiencing a drove of people running away from church over this last year? What is the response of followers of Jesus Christ to run to God in their time of need? Because He is the Lord over it all. He is the Master. He is the King. And He has, he has the only power available to help us through. And lastly, number four. By the way, lastly doesn't mean it's the end of the sermon. We're just getting warmed up. The Bible welcomes us to a real redemption. Uh, the world is full of false systems of redemption false systems of hope, places to put your trust, your faith, your time, your energy, your focus into government. Yeah, that's always worked out well. Education, science, philosophy, prosperity, even family. They all promise some kind of redemption, some kind of hope, yet none of them can deliver, and they haven't been able to for thousands of years. And if the false systems of redemption, if they could have dealt with our inherent problem with sin, the comprehensive and devastating results of your sin and my sin, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. But He did because it's real and redemption is needed. The Bible invites me to the hope that can only be found in a Redeemer, no place else. If there is no help, if there is no hope for what is inside of me, as Psalm 51, 9 to 10 points out and describes, hide your face from my... He's talk, the psalmist is talking to God. <clears throat> hide your face from my sins, because I know I got them. 
blot out all my iniquities, and, and instead, God, create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. I don't want to go down that path anymore. Without that hope for my insides, there is no way I'm going to be able to view and deal correctly with what is outside of me and all that's going on around me. And these four biblical perspectives, real world, real people, real God, and real redemption, they give each of us the essential wisdom for anything we'll ever face in this life. Only when we see the world is broken, only when we see ourselves as sinners and God in all His glory and the absolute completeness of our Redeemer's work on the cross for our sin debt, only then can we have a balanced and functionally worthwhile perspective and something wise to say about what's going on, about anything and everything. So with this backdrop, that's all that was, was a backdrop. So with this backdrop, we're going to enter a summer message series. It's going to take us right through probably, I don't know, I'll see, end of August, beginning of September, only God knows, because I don't. Myths that many Christians believe are in the Bible. (laughs) It's in the Bible, right? We're going to find out. So we're going to wet your, your taste a little bit with the first one. That's what we're going to do today, an introduction of what's to come. Faith can fix anything. It's a myth. It sounds pretty good, right? We may have even said it from time to time or thought it. It sounds like the right phrase to pull out of your pocket to encourage someone who really needs to be lifted up. Don't worry about it. Faith can fix anything. It it even sounds like it's right. The word on the street is that faith is a potent mixture of intellectual and emotional self-control. That's what we have today in our North American Christian world. That's what faith is. When you are able, you've probably heard this, when you are able to properly harness you. It's up to you. You got to harness this, all right? You got to have the faith. When you are able to properly harness this mysterious willing of yourself and things around you, you can literally change the outcome through positive thinking and clear visualization. Did you know that? In religious settings, it's called name it and claim it. Have you heard that? It's just another subtle way for Christians to say, faith can fix anything. After all, what about this verse? It's in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. Check this out. For anyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Woohoo! And this is the victory that has overcome the world. You say it. Our faith. <laughs> there it is. We have arrived. We're here, people. If you only had faith, things would be so much better. We have the power, have we? 
Do we? Have you ever been in a situation where you felt you had absolute faith that God was going to step in and fix the situation? You you didn't like your job, finances, or a person, (laughs) because that never happens. Only to have God do something completely different to the situation or to you, and you may have not even liked it. Has it ever happened? Not the expected outcome you prayed for, you prayed so hard for. You placed your faith, your words, even your actions to make it happen. Well, how did that different answer from God impact your walk with God and your ideas about how faith in life works? For some who have come to church and pray that and get a different answer, they walk away from church and, said, and say, you know, Christianity doesn't work. That prayer thing doesn't work. Have you ever expressed this? God, how could you let this happen? And you're like, yesterday. (laughs) And I'm sure for some of the believers 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem that they were rattled when apostles started, started to get killed and arrested And you read the story of one of those first occurrences. It's Peter, the Apostle Peter. And he he gets arrested right after James gets beheaded. And so he kind of knows what's next. And he's in prison. It's Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. I'm going to tell you the story. So the church, churches across Jerusalem are all gathered in homes. What are they doing? Praying with faith that Peter isn't martyred like James. And that night, as the prayers are ascending to heaven, Peter gets freed by God, and it is miraculous. Like, he's sitting there in the, in the prison, and an angel goes right there. There's an angel. And he says, okay, put your clothes on, put your, put your sandals on. The chains fall off his hand. The door opens magically, and, uh, and they walk out together. They walk past, and he's sitting between two guards as this happens. And they walk past other guards, and they, they come to the, the big gate that takes you out into the streets of Jerusalem, and it just goes open. The angel takes him outside and then disappears and leaves him standing there, a wanted man, escaped prisoner, standing in the street outside the jail. So Peter um, runs to a home he's familiar with, it's a, and there's a prayer meeting going on for him in full force, and Peter's trying to get off the street because he's an escaped prisoner, and the door is answered by a servant girl, and she is so shocked, she runs to tell everybody else Peter's at the door and leaves him out on the street. And the wisdom, after she relates to the prayer meeting, what just, what, what, who's at the door, the wisdom of the praying faithful church to the servant girl's revelation is... You're crazy. There's real faith. And then, as she persists, well, then it must be his ghost. And all God's people said, What? Were they praying for Peter's ghost or his physical body? Did they think, Ah, nuts. 
Prayer didn't get answered the way we were hoping. Peter's been executed like James, and his ghost has stopped by on the way to heaven. It's kind of crazy, but as you read the histories of the times, this was a Jewish cultural idea that the church had adopted in this instance. And I've heard some crazy cultural myths come out of the mouths of well-meaning believers in our own day. So Peter keeps pounding, and they let him in, and there's much rejoicing. God answers prayers. That's the end of the story. That's all that really matters, but God answers prayers. Sometimes while we are in the act of praying them, sometimes before we even open our mouths, the prayer's already answered. But you have to question the depth of our faith, don't you? This is a really good example of it. Our confidence in God answering prayer. This time it worked out miraculously. But is that the pattern? Is this the way it always works out in your life? Well, what about the end of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 to 38? We have the recounting of certain stories that none of us probably ever heard as kids if you went to Sunday school. This is probably one of the ones where the people putting the curriculum together said, we're not going to do that one. Let's go to the next one. This'll, kids will have nightmares. Parents will leave the church. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Okay, it starts off good. Some were tortured. What is torture? <laughs> I'd like to teach this. Refusing to accept release. Wow. So that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. It gets worse. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And that can be your life today if you just come forward and accept Jesus as your Savior. All of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. How do these true events over the centuries counter the idea that we can fix anything if we have enough faith? How often, if ever, ever, have you ever heard a sermon or study that focused on these verses? And why do you think that's so? Because it doesn't quite fit the North American church experience, does it? Faith is a word we like to use. It's, it's in songs. It's in movies. It's in the church. It's a it's a word we like to use, but we struggle to define. It's a word that's in the Bible. But if you listen to some TV preachers today, faith is God's secret sauce, and you need to get it. You've got to order that up real quick, because it'll fix everything. It's the means by which we are told that we grab hold of the abundant life. You know, the one Jesus talked about. And of course, abundance for many believers in our culture has to do with stuff on the outside, not so much with our insides. 
And we are preached at that if we can just conjure up enough faith, if we can just squeeze our eyes and our fists tight enough, if we can squeeze our wallets dry, we will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. We will snag the items we've always dreamed of. We will have a utopia here and now. You won't have to wait. If we just believe strongly enough, sickness will retreat. No more sickness, not in this life. Not for God's kids. And prosperity will come rushing in. We are told from select, isolated scriptures that we know we can trust God because His goodness, translation, prosperity, can be seen in how great the lives of the faithful are. Hmm. Maybe I got to reread Hebrews chapter 11 one more time. Does God provide material abundance to some people? Yes. God bless them. Does God provide material abundance to all people? No. God bless them. If that twisted perspective on faith is true, that if faith can fix anything, how do I explain the persecuted church in our world today that is being persecuted by the tens of thousands right now? Do those who today are willing to lay down their lives for Christ, who have laid down their lives for Christ, not have enough faith to save them from a martyr's death? Did the apostles fail the faith test when all but one of them died for preaching Jesus Christ? Tradition holds that even John, the only one who wasn't martyred, survived being boiled in oil before living out his days imprisoned on an island called Patmos, from which he wrote the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, it was an island in the Mediterranean, yes, but he wasn't in a resort, okay? Um, it wasn't one of the top ten retirement destinations for Americans. Maybe, just maybe, we have misunderstood what faith is. You think? This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We've misunderstood that part. And our misconceptions begin, I think, with the way it's just our English language works. It's so whacked out today. It really is. English translations of the New Testament use three words to try to describe all the nuances of one word in Greek the complexities of that, of that language, and they are faith, belief, and trust. Words we use all the time, right? And we need to. They are closely related terms, and they get thrown around a lot today. They're interchangeable. They're tagged onto everything, but they're not synonymous in our present-day English language. And maybe this is where some of the confusion is. Faith today, as I listen to it in songs and in, in, in books, it's all about the presence of confidence. It's the absence of fear and doubt. And this is why having faith today has come to look a lot like positive thinking. That's not what it is. 
you just got to have faith in everything from paying your bills to finding a spouse to winning a Super Bowl. You just got to have faith. Belief today focuses on intellectual assent, what I got up here. And some of you are like, well, you don't have very much belief then, Pete. Uh, the, the presence of our belief is measured on whether we think something is likely true, you know. Not whether we actually believe it's going to affect my life, but it, you know, like, like there's likely a God. You know, most Americans do believe that there is a God of some sort. You know, likely, that's probably, that's likely true. But it has no effect on my daily choices whatsoever, or what I do, or what I say. Our culture has little issue with a person believing in something, but not acting like they do believe in something. And that's why you can change your beliefs, you can change your churches, you can change your religion like clothes. When better information or a better style comes along, you just make the change. And everybody's like, oh, you got to do your, you, you got to be true to yourself. Seriously. Trust today. On the other hand, it almost, in our society, it almost always assumes a corresponding action. This is a good thing. If we trust someone, it will be evident in that relationship. So if a parent tells his teenager, I trust you, but never lets them leave the house, there's clearly no trust. So parents, just be honest. I don't trust you. Stay home. <laughs> well, that's not fair. I don't trust you. You can take it the rest of the way. I'm just starting you off. <laughs> now, while these three words clearly have different definitions um, in our modern English, almost every time they're used in the New Testament, when you and I come across them, they're a translation of the very same Greek root word. In his book, which I refer to a number of times through this summer study, Eight Dumb Things Smart Christians Believe, Larry Osborne writes this about these three words. That means that the Bible knows nothing of the sharp distinctions we make between faith, belief, and trust. Biblically, according to the language, they not only overlap, but they are practically synonymous. To the writers of Scripture, our modern distinctions bring faith, between faith, belief, and trust would seem quite strange and forced. So our biblical faith that we're talking about in week number one is not about what it can do for us which is the way it's usually presented. It's not about what it can do for us. Our biblical faith is about what we will do for God, not for ourselves. And we can only do it by His power and through His saving grace. Better yet, our biblical faith is about what God will do through you. And that's faith. We need to go back and read Hebrews 11, 
quite often. It'd be a great study for each of us just to do this week as we get, prepare ourselves for this study of looking at some of the misconceptions and some of the verbiage that is thrown around in churches all the time. Faith is confidence, not in yourself, but that God is who He says He is, as declared explicitly in Scripture. Faith is trust that God will do everything that He has promised He will do. You can count on it. And our faith is revealed, our faith in God is revealed when our beliefs in God are evidenced in our daily trust in God and how we converse and how we spend our money and how we interact with people and how we care for each other. Faith may not fix everything, but faith enables us to fix our eyes on the one who can fix everything if he so wills. The heroes in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, they all highlighted God's character. And they highlighted God's character not in what they said, but how they lived, their actions. Actions in the, in the face of, you, you, you heard me read it, apparent defeat as the world would, world would say, those guys are failures. What they believe in isn't worth much. Actions that remain true in spite of persecution and rejection and alienation, even from family. Some of them were led into lifelong suffering. What does our faith, what does our belief, what does our trust and our corresponding actions reveal and say about our God to a world who is blind to our God? John 16.33, Jesus said this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Where? In Jesus. In the world, guess what you're going to have? Tribulation. Jesus, peace. But take heart. Who has overcome the world? I have overcome the world. And that faith that you now possess is from Jesus. And it's because of his victory, nothing that you and I have done or ever will do. There are a litany of self-help, self-help best-selling books out there. Uh, there, there, ha- there have been for decades, and they make billions of dollars. And they're written on ways to improve yourself, right? You've seen them. Uh, usually, it's five easy steps. You know, uh, you can lose 30 pounds by the time you reach page 7. You can reduce your debt by buying more of my books. I'll lead you along. Don't worry. Just hang in there. And it goes on and on and on. And what what it reveals and what we learn about ourselves is that we are a people who crave a fix in a lot of ways. We want to we want a fix that is quick and painless. Like you go to the doctor and you got a pain and he tells you what to do and you say, can't you give me something? 
I mean, I'm, I'm walking out of here with nothing. Like, uh, give, me a, give me a pill. Give me a shot. Give me something. We want a we fix that's quick, that's painless, and that leaves us in a much better place than we are right now. It's the kind of fix that is missing from the promises of Jesus in the best-selling book of all time that matters most. We are in for a great summer study. I hope you join in with us, and I hope I'm going to have stuff online. I'm going to be sending out emails to help you prepare yourself for each of these myths that are not in God's Word. But right now, would you rise with me? And we're going to focus on the God of this Word as we close in united worship together. It's why we're here. We are here to worship God in unity. It's what He wants to see. Heavenly Father, we bow before You. For you alone are worthy of our retention. You alone are worthy of meaningful words, clear worship from pure hearts. And before we worship you, Lord, we, we confess any sins we are aware of. We come clean before you and as your promises are sure, we know that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We praise you now in the name of Jesus. Amen.